Culture dictates who you should emulate and admire and why, as well as who you should avoid and maybe shun or dishonor or stay away from. We often spend our entire lives conforming to that criteria. But what if all of it, everything we're living for, is just dust? Welcome to the ACC Podcast. We're honored that you took some time out of your day to listen to one of our weekly messages. We hope that these messages bring you closer to Jesus, strengthen your faith, and deepen your understanding about the Bible. If you're thinking of attending ACC, we're currently holding one service at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. You can visit our website for more information. That's anacortischristian.church. That's A-N-A-C-O-R-T-E-S Christian.church. You can also visit our website if you have any questions about ACC, like our core beliefs, where we are located, or if you'd like to get in contact with us, we would love to hear from you. So, whether you're sitting, driving, or exercising, thanks for tuning in. Let's dive into the Bible together. If you want to follow along with this series in our video study. The videos are really well done and they complement um, what's going along with the sermons. And you can find them on our website or on YouTube. On the website, it's under the media tab and there's first link is a James study. And there's a list of videos that you can watch for each week as well as you can download um, questions like study questions, small group type questions. Um, and so those are available for you. We actually have them out in the foyer as well, but I don't think we're quite up to date on, on this week in the foyer yet. So um, if you can get them online, great. Otherwise, uh, we could get them for you if you want. But I'd encourage you to go through that and, um, you know, follow along with us with that part of the series. So in the book of James, we are entering into chapter two today, this week. And uh, chapter one kind of ended with a segue and it ended, if you remember, uh, James was talking about our faith. If you're a Christian, if you believe in Christ, he says there's like a seed that's been planted in you, right? And that seed is meant to produce something. And, and he challenged us according to um, what does the fruit of our life look like? Does it look in keeping with the kind of seed that's been planted, the gospel of Jesus in our hearts? And, um, you know, he ended with, he, he said, those who uh, forget are like those who look in a mirror and ponder the face of their origin or the face of their genesis even and says, like, what, what is my identity? Who am I? And then, and then turn around and just forget what kind of a person they are. And then he says this, this is the fruit, real religion, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so this week, he's going to go into talking about partiality or showing favoritism and what that says about our walk with God. And it's a little challenging. And so I'm going to go ahead and read and then we'll, we'll kind of break it down and work ourselves through it here. James 2, 1 through 13 my brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person 
dressed in filthy clothes, also comes in. If you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a challenging passage, and yet even just slightly veiled within the words themselves is, is, is a really incredible picture uh, of how we can have hope and, and how you can change us and, uh, Lord, what, what you desire for us in, in your world. And so I just pray that your words would be communicated through this pile of notes I have into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, and we would hear you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so what's happening here? You know, he starts off, and I'll just, another translation kind of puts it this way, and I think it makes it a little more clear. He says, my brothers and sisters, do not hold on to the allegiance to Jesus the Messiah, the Lord of glory, and show favoritism at the same time. It's, it's like trying to say, uh, you know, what Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. Or, um, you know, to have these two things, one, one in one hand and one in the other, faith, allegiance to Jesus, and yet be living a life of favoritism, it's like oil and water. It doesn't mix. They can't go together. It's just impossible. Um, when a person becomes a Christian, placing their trusting allegiance or faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior and King, James says it's like that person is implanted with a seed. He calls this seed the word of truth as opposed to the deception that comes through letting our desires rule us. The word can save you, he says. John 1 says that the, Jesus is the Logos, the Word of God. James says that through this seed, the Word of truth, Jesus, the Word of God, we are given new birth by God as a kind of first fruits of His new creation. So when God plants this seed in us, you get a new identity. You become a new person, a fresh start, a new kind of human. How do we know if that seed has taken root? How do we know if it's real? Well, one way, James is saying, is when you become a Christian, your attitude 
towards wealth and the purpose that it serves totally changes. More specifically, the criteria by which we measure a person's value or worth is totally flipped upside down from the way the world measures value and worth in a person. The normal criteria that determines who we choose to associate with and why, that gets rearranged. So James gets an illustration here. Help me understand, James. Help me understand uh, what this looks like. And he's got a picture of a gathering, and there's two kinds of people. One shows up in really fine garments, and the other with shabby, filthy garments. And the person who sees those people come in is determining their value, their position in relation to themselves or at their table, depending on their appearance. They're looking at that appearance, right? Now, to some degree, that is pretty normal. We all size each other up by what we look like and what we wear, right? I mean, and that in and of itself isn't always a problem. It's what we do with that assessment that matters. Okay, for example, I can tell something about someone if they show up wearing a uniform, right? I can usually tell by a person's appearance whether that person is homeless or not. Or you can often tell, though it's not always a sure sign, whether someone is dressed for success, as they say, right? You might be able to guess whether a person rides a Harley Davidson based on what they wear. You can probably put a picture in your mind already of what I'm talking about, right? But in the Bible, when you hear this word garment, or often it's just translated as clothes, but if it's the Greek word garment, if that's what's being used for an external appearance, it's usually intentional because in ancient times, a person's outer garment or robe had a very significant um, purpose. And it oftentimes um, was the sign of that person's inheritance or family legacy, family name, kind of like a, a kilt you know, with a plaid, and there's a, a family plaid that denotes who you belong to and what you're about and what that family's history is, right? So a scholar named Gordon Hugenberger did a lot of research on this, and I've spoken to it before, but he talked about how, in many instances, the robe was like the dowry for the wedding, or oftentimes it was passed down from the father to the son who would carry on the family name, usually by primogeniture. That means the firstborn who inherits everything and then is in charge of the rest of the family. Oftentimes there was money sewn into the patches of the garment itself. They even would sign loan documents by pressing the hem of their robe into a clay tablet and, and hardening that. And that was their sign. And, and if you um, broke the agreement based on that document, they would strip the robe off your back. Okay, that's where that phrase comes from. Um, and basically, that's like everything that the robe represents, everything you owe to whoever you sign that loan document for is going to them, right? You're going to default on it. So that's a huge symbol of a person's wealth, inheritance, status, legacy, name, all tied together, like who you are, it's very much connected with what you wear in Bible times. You see it in Joseph in the multicolored robe that his father gives him. And the scandal of that story is that Joseph is the younger son and not the firstborn. And so when he goes and shows off to the 
older brothers, they're ticked, right? Because they're supposed, the oldest, Judah, was supposed to get the inheritance. So they sell Joseph into slavery and rip up his robe and make it look like an animal attack. Meanwhile, they're the ones behaving like beasts, animals, getting really theological here. Um, there's Jesus' story and the prodigal son. What happens after the, the younger son squanders his share of the inheritance and then he comes home to the father? What does the father say? Get the best robe and put it on him, right? Scripture even speaks of Jesus' own outer garment symbolically in John 13 when he washes the disciples' feet, and we'll get to that. Or when he's being crucified and the guards, the, the soldiers, divide his garments among themselves. There's, there's deep meaning in that statement because of what a garment would represent, and particularly as Jesus, the Son of God who owns all things. Uh, what would that mean? What does that garment represent? In ancient times, at gatherings, people would be placed at the table or venue according to their status or their position in society. Often, uh, that would be displayed in their appearance and certainly tied to their wealth. So the question is, who holds a position at Jesus' table? And who's at your table? Who do you let sit at your table and how close do you let them get to, to you? Or where, you know, who's at the footstool maybe is the other part of the question. The place where you have the servants wash your feet. René Girard, a philosopher that I had to read in college, uh, wrote about something he called mimetic desire. In other words, it's that desire to emulate and copy people, especially people that we admire. Now, in many ways, this is biology. It, you could say it's, it's like an evolutionary construct. It's like as kids, we automatically look up to and try to emulate the people that we desire. And that helps us in life. That helps us to grow and progress, right? Um, as a kid, I heard the commercial, and I too wanted to be like Mike. I don't know. I had no natural skill at basketball, but I was convinced that I would at, at some point, you know. And, um, or one day I remember looking over at my cousin drawing and I was blown away by his talent. I admired him, looked up to him. So what did I do? I pulled out a paper and a pencil and I started to hone my skills at drawing and art, always wanting to live up to what I saw in him. Just as I admired my cousin for his skills, cultures have set up systems by which we determine what is admirable in people how you can get that same admiration from others. And so often we're drawn to people we admire based on superficial or external things because somewhere, someone somewhere determined that actors, celebrities, rich people, politicians, etc., they're the people you should emulate and admire and listen to, even worship, although they would never call it that. Wealth, money, possessions, those have often been a part of the criteria throughout the ages. Culture dictates who you should emulate and admire and why, as well as who you should avoid and maybe shun or dishonor or stay away from 
And why? It's not advantageous to you. It's not good to be seen with certain people. It won't look good uh, in your portfolio. We often spend our entire lives conforming to that criteria, garnering success in the eyes of others, rising to the top, hoarding wealth, seeking fame and celebrity. But what if all of it, everything we're living for, is just dust? And this is relevant to us. And I think it's appropriate. The Scripture, it's kind of it's going to beat us up for a little bit. But then I'm going to build us back up too. You know, we live in a town in which the average cost of a three-bedroom home just landed at $700,000. We certainly have this issue here. Of, of wealth and poverty, but the appearance that we are drawn to or try to be impressed by or emulate. Now, here's one. Maybe, maybe you've experienced something like this. I know that my wife and I have. I've heard another story recently. But you're in a small group or you meet someone at church and you have people over to your house and it's all good, it's all wonderful, and then it's someone else's turn to host and you go to their house, and you go, oh my goodness, I feel really embarrassed right now that I had this person in my home, you know, or I feel like, um, wow, I'm really not satisfied with what I have right now. Like, I, we need a new house. We need, you know, um, all of a sudden, this issue kind of hits home. What about celebrity, fame? You know, we are drawn to people that we want to admire and emulate and that culture tells us to, even Christian celebrity. In the church, we have exalted musicians, celebrity pastors. They even started a Facebook page. It's kind of poking fun at uh, preachers and sneakers, they call it. But it's whatever, whatever item you can find that a famous preacher is wearing that costs more than $1,000, like a $5,000 leather jacket or a $1,000 pair of shoes just to look trendy and cool. That isn't to say that there aren't people who should be honored for the quality of their work, but what defines that honor? When does honor give way to some perverted form of worship? How about this? Do you choose to associate with people based on their political views and who agrees or disagrees? Or perhaps based upon the pandemic and whether someone's views and choices align with yours or not? Is there a distancing happening? You know, the church has this incredible opportunity right now to look totally different from the culture in the way we unite across disagreements as opposed to the polarization we see happening all around us right now. Is it safe to say that we have worldly criteria by which we would naturally try to hold certain people at arm's length and people we would be more drawn to associate with? We judge by externals, appearances, and what they represent to us. The world's criteria. Therefore, we become judges with evil reasoning or motives. 
and we treat people accordingly. Now, what's wrong with this? Three things. One, it's insulting to Jesus. Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored those people. How can we hold on to allegiance to Jesus the King, the Lord of glory, when the very display of that glory is that he laid it aside, proclaiming the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim claim freedom to the captives, sight to the, blind, to the blind, liberty for the oppressed. The oppressed that James says are being oppressed by the people we try to copy and look up to. Who does James go on to name as the common oppressor of the poor, the rich in this case? What did Jesus come to do? To set them free. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Or 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 31, Paul writes, brothers and th sisters, think of what you were when you were called. You weren't all celebrities or superstars or ultra successful. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If we claim to have allegiance to Jesus, who looked upon you and I in our spiritual poverty and extended grace towards you without partiality, and then we turn around and show worldly partiality ourselves, it is absolutely insulting to God. Like the parable of the wicked servant. Remember that one? That'll be in the video this week. The servant who owed a mountain of debt, billions of dollars by today's standards, and when he plead before the judge, the judge said, I, I will absolve you of all debt. But instead of turning around and reflecting this kind of behavior, he turns to his own servant who owed him a few hundred dollars worth maybe and beat him and said, pay back what you owe and threw him in prison. When the judge heard this, he got really angry at that wicked servant. So number one, it's insulting to the judge. It's insulting to Jesus. Two, it's blasphemy. Blasphemy. What do I mean by that? Let's play this out a little bit. So don't the rich oppress you and drag you into judgment? Don't they blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? The excellent name. What's he talking about? Well, at Jesus' baptism, Jesus was at the river, and the Spirit of the Lord came down on him, and the Father proclaimed, You are my Son, whom I loved, with whom I am well pleased. 
And he heard this anointing, this name given him. And the same is claimed of us, that when we are baptized into Christ, we are given the same name. We are given that seed, the word of truth in us, the Holy Spirit. We are beloved brothers and sisters, fellow heirs of the kingdom, because we bear the name of Jesus, the Lord of glory. Right? In verse 4, he says, Haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil reasoning? In showing favoritism, haven't you taken it upon yourself to become the judge, just like the oppressive rich person? When you show partiality against the poor or someone of lower status, you are declaring that worldly glory defined by external wealth, fame, politics, etc., is higher than, more glorious than, the name of Jesus by which you have been named and called. And so it's blasphemy to make distinctions among people who are called by that name because it's doing that very thing to the name of Jesus and upholding worldly glory over and above his own. It's transplanting the law of mercy with the law of judgment. And as the judge, you make yourself, we make ourselves superior to God's judgment. When we say sit at my footstool, you know the times in the Bible when footstool is represented, in the Old Testament it says heaven is God's throne, the earth is his footstool. Everything here is God's footstool, right? Or Psalm 110, sit at my right hand, he says to his Messiah, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The whole earth is God's footstool. God's enemies will be a footstool for his feet. So when we elevate ourselves and decide that certain people should sit at our own proverbial footstools, it's like we're playing God. We're becoming the arbiters of their value and their worth. We decide how they should be treated based on their status. And we're putting the ones Jesus died for in the place where his enemies belong. The ones he will subdue. So it's blasphemy. And three, it makes us lawbreakers. Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do, commit, if you do not commit adultery but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. All right, what does he mean? Is he saying that Christians are bound by the external law and that breaking it in any way makes you a transgressor and, you know, you lose your salvation or something along those lines? Well, first, notice how he speaks of the quote to love your neighbor as yourself as the royal law. 
Why do we favor some people over others? Is it not to elevate ourselves or what people think of us according to the world's standards? What does it mean for something to be royal? To be royal is the highest position, right? The the most you can be elevated to. The law of royalty is the royal law of King Jesus. It's God's, it's the law of God's kingdom to love your neighbor. And this law sets us free. But when we show favoritism, we're claiming that our judgment, our worldly law, is a higher authority. We choose the law of judgment over the law of mercy. James's point is this. Not so much, hey, if you break my rule and fail to love someone in any given way, you're a lawbreaker and I'm going to judge you. No, that's not the point. The point is this. If you reject God's standard of impartial love and mercy extended towards you, evidenced by whether or not you extend that same mercy to others, then you can expect that you will be judged in the same manner of judgment that you hold over other people. Okay? In other words, you will be judged by the law of your choosing. It's up to you how you want to be judged by God. Okay? The standard by which you judge others is the standard by which you will be judged. So if you say, I believe in the royal law of mercy, that God died for me and extended his mercy towards me, therefore that's the law of my life. That's the law of the land. That's the law I believe in. I might falter here and there, but that's the law I choose. On the other hand, if I say I believe that law and then go live by another law and say this law that gives me this feeling of euphoric glory now because I look better than someone else, that's better than what God has to offer me. God says, fine, that's what you want. That's what you'll get. And the same standard that you hold over everyone else, that's what's going to be held over you. Keeping the law of Christ, one commentary says this way, while showing favoritism is as much a contradiction as if you claimed you were keeping the law just because you were not committing adultery even though you were practicing murder. And so that's how, why he says what he says about adultery and murder there. It sounds ridiculous, right? And yet, the world system, or many religious systems, some Christians would preach this way. Mormonism works this way. Some Judaism works this way. Is that the way it works with God is that your good works are, are kept on some sort of holy tally or checklist. And if you, if you do bad works, you know, you better watch out and make sure that your good works outweigh your bad. And as long as your good outweighs the bad, then you're okay with God. That's a kind of slavery. And what he's saying here is like, hey, if you're violating God's law, there's no amount of good work that changes the fact that you're a lawbreaker. Right? And the truth is, we all are. Like We've all broken this law. Every one of us is guilty. The world's standard of judgment leads to oppression, which is what favoritism towards the rich implies. But the point of the royal law is that it gives freedom to the oppressed. And we are called to live by the standard that frees from oppression. 
Now, let's get deeper than this, though, because it wouldn't be okay to say, therefore, go home and try to do better. Right? That doesn't change anything. Let's just beat everyone up and, and make us feel like, oh, man, you know, and, and that's it. No, we need to figure it out. Like, what is going on inside here that causes me to do this? What is that? And what does God give me that can tackle that thing, that can actually deal with it and change me? You know, that's the question. When I was um, younger, you know, I was, I was bullied at a young age. Probably many of you were too in some regard or another. But I think most of us, we have people wounds, right? We've been hurt by people. And so there is kind of an automatic distrust. And so my reaction a lot of times is to default to approaching people in a very calculated way with fear, sometimes judgmentalism, often selfishness. Are you damaged in your relationships? Do you feel that tug or that need for earthly approval or the fear of being judged by someone else or rejected or hurt by the words and actions of others? I think we get locked into these patterns because our character is just as broken as our world is. There is both a woundedness in our character as well as a craving to prove ourselves and to justify ourselves in front of everyone else. No, no, look at how clean my house is or, or look at how virtuous I am or how religious I am or how good I can sing or speak in front of people, right? Thus, our position in the eyes of others becomes really important. We also subject ourselves to our standards of favoritism and so inject our fears and insecurities into our relationships, one of my commentaries said. We abhor exposure of our failures and weaknesses. We are internally driven to compete and outdo. And he writes, all of this is favoritism in modern dress. The result, self-serving relationships, the heart of favoritism. It pollutes the church. It keeps the church from being a fellowship of love in which our lives are refreshed and healed by the taste of God's love in each other and by a wonderful celebration of God's love in real worship. Proverbs 22, 1 and 2 says, A good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. Rich and poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. So where do you get a name? Where do you get a name? Isn't that what we all want? A good name. That's why I admire the rich. That's why I admire celebrities. That's why I agree on Facebook and preach their messages or whatever. Right? Aren't I, aren't I just trying to get a name, a good name? Does high position come through wealth and acclaim? Or does the highest position come through faith in Christ? Because the truth is, every rich homeowner, politician, celebrity, they are just as gassy as you are. 
They have just as many failures and quirks as you do and as many faults and weaknesses. In God's eyes, our standards of wealth and position mean nothing. And the drama we play out obsessing with 90% of our lives with is completely empty. I don't know about 90%. I just grabbed a number. Don't quote me on that. So what's the solution? Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. Who are those? Who are those that you are to speak and act and say, I'm one of those? In John chapter 13, it said that Jesus, knowing that he had come from the Father and was going back to the Father, in other words, he's not like the rest of us from dust to dust. He is not part of the curse. And knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that was what was supposed to be given to all human beings in Genesis chapter 1, all the fish and the birds and the sea and everything all around, and said, have dominion. So knowing that Jesus was a real human being, a true human, unperverted ruler in the highest position of God's authority and rank, he took his outer garment and he laid it aside. And then taking on a towel as a symbol of the lowest humanity, he bent down at the footstool and started to wash his disciples' feet. Why did he do that? Love. Self-giving, total self-emptying love. And he would take that love to a cross. And he would lay down all his rights and authority and identity that he deserved. And was scorned and mocked. And he did that for you. He did that for love. That's what changes our hearts. And that's the mirror we need to look back into over and over again. That's the seed that we need to revisit again and again because only that crowds out those other voices. Galatians 3.27 says, For those of you who were baptized into Christ, you have been clothed with Christ. I might have a shabby garment, a dirty one. I might have a very fancy one. And here we are at our tables, working ourselves up, trying to get in with the right people and ignore the other people so we can make ourselves look better or take pride in this garment, this identity. And Galatians says that if you're in Christ, you get to take that off and put his on. That worth, that significance, that love, that identity, his righteousness, his holiness, the authority to rule as an heir in the kingdom of God, as a beloved child.
you don't have to prove yourself because in Christ you have already been given a position over and above everything that you are seeking through favoritism. James says you are beloved brothers and sisters, fellow heirs of the kingdom with King Jesus, the Lord of glory. You're not just brothers and sisters, but beloved brothers and sisters. In the divine judgment that Jesus took for us, we were freed from condemnation by God's show of mercy. Far from treating us with contempt, God has mercifully covered our sin and made us His own honored people. Now in relationship with others, we absolutely must practice mercy ourselves. Or else we show that we have not accepted God's mercy. So in conclusion, we cannot hold the law of oppression and the law of freedom and mercy together. They don't go together. Which system of judgment do you choose? Does your sense of identity come from your position as a person of faith in Christ? Or does it come from your status as a person of wealth or poverty? You get to choose. You get to choose. And how you judge reflects the kind of judgment you've chosen to put your confidence in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this kingly gift. Lord, it's easy to just um, ignore this. It's easy to just move out of the room and not really question our own motives and thoughts. And I might just say, Lord, yes, there are reasons to hold certain people at bay. That's true. But there are wrong reasons to do that too. So, Lord, be our mirror today and expose our motives and what are we trying to achieve? What are we working for? Who are we trying to impress? Who are we trying to ignore and why? What do we think we lose or gain from the way we regard others and who we gravitate towards? And I thank you so much, God, for your mercy and your love because that's what changes us. You don't respond by saying, how dare you? How dare you? Get it right. No, your response is a gift a gift that radically alters our hearts and our thinking, a gift of unfathomable mercy and love that we didn't deserve. So I pray that that gift would have its intended effect in our lives, even if it takes trials and testing to do it. But today, Lord, help us to choose mercy and guard us against the crime, the sin, the blasphemy of showing partiality. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you've accepted Christ or have questions about having a relationship with Jesus, we would love to hear from you. 
call us at 360-293-3729 or visit our website anytime. Have a great week, and remember, you are loved by us and by Jesus.